This is They Create Worlds, episode 123, A Casual World, part 2. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. We started off looking at a bunch of casual games. Well, I'd like some more. I know that we just established what a casual game is, sort of the first inclinations of casual games, but really, that's just a taste, a prelude to the main event, because casual games up to this point are still pretty niche. They're pretty isolated to... A few console things, a few PC games, maybe a few arcade things. They aren't the ubiquitous thing that we have on our phones. They aren't the ubiquitous thing we have on computers or something that everyone just picks up and just plays whenever they're ordering food or waiting to pass five to ten minutes. That's right. Where we left off last time, we had the idea of the casual game, even if that term wasn't being used yet, pretty well established with the launch of Tetris. Tetris really was a global phenomenon. I mean, it was huge on the PC. It was even huger on the Game Boy. There were also console versions, arcade versions. It blew up really big. I mean, it sold over its life 30 million on the Game Boy alone. Of course, it was bundled with the Game Boy, which is part of what made that spread. This was really a watershed moment in showing that with the right type of game you can get massive audience participation of all ages. Brad Freger, who we talked about, had been laying some of the groundwork for that by producing, not designing, but producing games like Shanghai that kind of showed that on a smaller scale, but that PC audience is always going to be much smaller than the audience of something on, say, a Nintendo Game Boy or a Nintendo Entertainment System. This is kind of ground zero for this type of game taking off. But as Jeffrey said, it's not the point where it becomes completely ubiquitous. We briefly touched on this at the end of the last episode. Tetris is portable, and Tetris is something that your kids are going to maybe take on a long car ride to play on their Game Boy, or they're going to take on a long plane trip to play on their Game Boy, etc. It's easy to forget because there were so many improved iterations that came out over time, but the original Game Boy was very bulky. It had a screen that could be charitably described as temperamental. Temperamental, you say? (laughs) All I had to do was just have it at the perfect angle, have the light hit it just right, and then if I play with the contrast well enough, I can actually play for hours and hours on end. (laughs) Which is totally why you had these wonderful accessories for a portable light that would go on it, a magnifying glass (laughs) with a light on it, other little thingies on it. Yeah, it could be temperamental and bright light. Exactly. So this still isn't going to be something like the casual games we see today, where it's like I'm waiting in line at Chipotle and the line's long, so... I'm going to play a game for three minutes while I wait in line. You know, it's it's not the kind of thing that's going to be ubiquitous. You need a few other advances to come along, even though this was a very good start. Even though it does good business, even though there are 30 million Tetrises out there on Game Boy alone, though, like I said, part of that is because it was bundled. It's not like 30 million people went out and bought it. Today, you have games 
casual games that literally have well over 100 million players, a completely different order of magnitude. So in part two here, we're just going to kind of take a brief look, brief for us, at how we get from, oh, there's these really cool little experiments that everybody likes on things like the Macintosh and the Game Boy to everybody's playing games everywhere, which is really what the casual revolution is. So we'll pick up our story then again with Tetris. Again, we're not going to tell the Tetris story. We did that. We did a very long episode on that. We'd be turning this into a five-part episode on casual games if we went back there again. So just check that out if you want the full story of Tetris. The big takeaway from that big story is that Tetris is huge. Tetris went through a lot of companies that thought they were going to be publishing Tetris and ended up not publishing Tetris because of confusing rights issues. So now everybody wants in on this new bandwagon, which of course is a common thing. Anytime a new hit video game hits the market, going all the way back to Pong in 1972-73, you'll have some companies that are even more focused on trying to capture some of that Tetris wave because they were denied Tetris after thinking they had gotten it. So you see a wave of puzzle games coming out in the wake of Tetris. Some of them are what we would consider casual, but some of them are what we would consider more hardcore, too, because there's a real move to bring these games into coin-op as well. In the coin-op setting, of course, they're pretty much by definition not going to be casual games. Back in the day, as we said in our last episode, you could certainly consider something like Pong fairly casual. We're well beyond that. We're in the late 80s now, and you really are only successful if you are getting people to feed massive amounts of quarters and do massive amounts of buy-in and all of this stuff that we've talked about before. So an arcade game is not going to be casual. It's going to be something that is meant to gobble up another one of your quarters every 30 seconds to two minutes, depending on your skill level. We do need to look at the arcade setting very briefly anyway, because even though the puzzle games there aren't strictly casual, they introduce something that is very, very important to casual games all the way up until today. That, of course, is the concept of match three. Is that something where I try to match three patterns, three colors, and then it disappears, and then something crazy goes on? Sort of like say, Tetris Attack on a Super Nintendo, or Bejeweled, or something like that. Exactly. Tetris, of course, introduced this idea that you are clearing the screen of things. That's one of the big, important, lasting innovations of Tetris outside of Tetris itself just being incredibly popular, which itself is a big deal, obviously. Of course, in Tetris, those things are lines. You have your play field, and you have to fill in an entire line of blocks in order to clear that part of the screen. And of course, you have to keep clearing the screen because otherwise the screen fills up and if it reaches the top, your game is over. So, you know, you're putting these patterns of these different pieces together and heaven forbid that you need a line piece and it never shows up. Line piece! Line piece! (laughs) If you would like to understand the story of line piece, I will throw that in the show notes. Absolutely. Still one of my favorites from back in the day, the good old Tetris God. So that's great, but it can be a lot. 
One of the ways that some of the people that came along afterwards tried to differentiate themselves from Tetris is they tried to come up with different ways of clearing the screen. Match 3 actually predates Tetris. The very first Match 3 game was a Japanese game in the mid-1980s called Chain Shot. I don't believe that game had any influence going forward. I think it's just one of these things that somebody came up with that and it got around a little bit, but not very much. And then years later, somebody else came up with something similar. I just want to mention Chain Shots so that our more discerning listeners don't listen to this whole Match 3 history and it's like, but there was an earlier game. Yeah, there's always an earlier game. Chain Shot is that earlier game in this case. If we can find it, I've never looked to see if it's on the web or not. If we can find it, we'll put it in the show notes, but it, it doesn't really need to be discussed. It's certainly not the game that really cemented this entire concept. It's a game that was sort of like a little mini flare-up that might have been interesting, but it's not the one that really cemented Match 3 in the public zeitgeist. Exactly, exactly. There were really two games that both came out in Coinop. Both came out from companies that thought they had the rights to Tetris. Those companies are Atari Games and Sega. We talked about them both in this course of our Tetris story. Sega had secured for themselves the Japanese coin-operated game rights. Atari Games had secured themselves the U.S., the North American rights. And then everything, of course, went completely bonkers. So good for that. Listen to the episode. Both of them wanted to get in on this Tetris thing. And since they had already been kind of geared towards bringing Tetris to the arcade... And since they were both arcade companies, that's where they wanted to go. It's kind of interesting that something like this would go coin-op. I'm not exactly sure why that was, that we kind of had this brief flare-up of puzzle games. I mean, obviously, it's because Tetris was popular. I mean, I know that. I guess coin-op was looking for fresh ideas at this point. This was just a little bit before the one-on-one fighting game really hit big with Street Fighter Two. Shoot 'em ups and beat 'em ups were popular, but they'd been around for a little bit of time. So it was probably just a matter of looking for something fresh. And, and the thing about Tetris is it's a game that you can tune to be played for hours and hours and hours on something like a Game Boy. The concept is one that you can also make really hard if you want. You can speed it up. You can adjust the pattern of the blocks so that you often get really difficult combinations. You can start the bottom of the screen partially filled so that you have less wiggle room to adjust. I mean, there are a lot of ways that you can tune this to make it exciting in 90 seconds of play as well. So I suppose that's why puzzle games were something that these companies were interested in. And of course, once they lost Tetris, they wanted in. Atari's game was called Clax. I don't know if you've ever played that one either in the arcade or, you know, obviously it's had home conversions as well. I have not played Clax, no. Clax started, it was the brainchild of an Atari programmer named Mark Pierce. Mark Pierce had actually worked on Macromind Video Works. We're starting to see something very important that comes in because there are a lot of animation programs that are starting to appear on PC in this period of time and on Macintosh because Apple introduced the GUI interface to the mass market with the Macintosh. Because the Macintosh had this GUI interface and this ease of clicking around to do things, you were starting to see 
a rise of animation authoring programs that were geared towards use, not just by professionals, but even by interested amateurs, because the GUI made this whole process much easier. You didn't necessarily have to type in line after line after line after line of code to do an animation. If you had a package, if you had a program that already did all of that under the surface and then just let you use a few mouse clicks to do an animation through the GUI interface, then you had something new. You had something that was easy for anyone that wanted to put in a little bit of time and effort but didn't have to be a true professional to do animation. That's going to come back into our story. It's only related to the Clack story in that it started out as something he was fooling around with, an animation prototype he was doing in video works. These animation programs are going to come back in a big way in just a few minutes here in our casual game story as well. He got the idea of doing this animated conveyor belt and things rapidly coming towards you on this animated conveyor belt, which is based on the very, very famous I Love Lucy episode with the Chocolate Factory, which is the episode of I Love Lucy that just about everyone, even people who never watched I Love Lucy, have probably at least heard mention of at one point in their life, even if they haven't seen it, where Lucy is on the uh, the chocolate assembly line and stuff just keeps coming and keeps coming and she's trying to keep up and she can't keep up uh, with the chocolates and getting them packaged and so finally she and her friend starts eating every chocolate as it comes off the line because they can't put them anywhere. You know, that's one of the first really classic sitcom moments on television and it's something that's been imitated a lot in a lot of media and a lot of formats. So Clax, this conveyor belt idea and stuff coming out off the conveyor belt started from there. Then when they uh, wanted a game, you know, Fast forward a couple of years, when Atari Games wanted a game to compete with Tetris, this idea came back to him, and he came up with this idea of these various tiles coming towards you on this conveyor belt, and you'd have five lines at the bottom of the screen where these tiles could stack up, and so five columns on this conveyor belt with these different colored tiles coming, and the idea was trying to get three of them matched up horizontally, vertically, I believe it allowed diagonally as well, to complete a line. Even though it was five long, you only had to match three tiles to eliminate things because otherwise it would get incredibly way too crazy. Atari came out with Clax in 1989, which started as this little demo thing. Then Sega also came out with a game a year later in 1990 that was also based on this match three thing called Columns. I don't know if you ever played that one, maybe on your Game Gear. I actually own that game on Game Gear, and I adore I that game immensely. <laughs> I played that a lot. That was the primary game that I would play on the Game Gear. If I could just go run and grab it, I'd be able to like show it on camera or something. But <laughs> since this is a podcast and not a video cast, you don't get to see it. That's but I'll right. show it in the show notes. <laughs> Absolutely. Obviously, they ended up packaging it with the Game Gear as well because it was a perfect counterpoint to Tetris. It actually started out in the arcade, though even before the arcade, interestingly enough, it actually started out as just a little demo program on a computer, on specifically a Unix workstation. This goes back to the same phenomenon that we talked about in the last episode with the beginning of Microsoft games in Windows and the first game that they did, Reversi. They put out Reversi in Windows 1 and Windows 2 because why not? They had it. But it started out as something where a programmer working on the operating system wanted something quick and easy to mess around with 
that would allow him to understand programming in a GUI and understand manipulating things in a GUI. So these little casual games are great for that because they don't take a lot of code to throw together. If you're doing something very basic that isn't meant for consumer consumption with all the bells and whistles and music and sound and art and whatnot, it has a lot of things that you can just click on and move around because very basic casual games, you know, even outside of the computer realm, when you're talking about board games, you're talking about card games like Klondike Solitaire. A lot of what you're doing there is just you've got a setup of things and then you are picking up and moving a thing to another spot and then to another spot and then to another spot. So it's a great way to just very simply get a GUI operation up and running where you have a few things on a board or on a table or some other virtual space or even just on a blank white background. And then you take your mouse and you click and you move it here and you move it there and you see if things actually move the way you think they're supposed to. And then if they don't, you go back into your code and are like, why isn't it working? And so it's a really good way to get a solid foundation in GUI interface programming. That's exactly how Columns started too. Uh, Even though it's by Sega, it's actually was created by a Hewlett-Packard employee named Jay Geertsen. He was working in the X11 environment, the X11 system in Unix on a Hewlett-Packard workstation. This was the period of time when you still had the concept of something that was more powerful than a PC, what we would call a PC. I mean, they're really all PCs, If you had a super powerful PC of the type that was particularly uh, suited to developing complex programs or doing complex animation or graphics and whatnot, back in those days you called that a workstation. A lot of workstations back then used Unix as their operating system. Eventually, as just ordinary PCs became more and more powerful, the distinction between a workstation and a PC kind of disappeared. Now, if you're doing advanced work on stuff, you're just on a really high-end PC. You're not in some other crazy category of computer anymore. He was working in X11, which was a GUI framework that was developed for use on terminals and workstations, was Unix-compatible. Calling it Windows for workstations would be greatly, greatly oversimplifying and misconstruing it because that's not really what it was. It's a shorthand I'll use right now. It was basically Windows for Unix or Windows for workstations in a way. He was doing the same thing that the Microsoft guy was doing, was just experimenting with GUI interfaces. What better way to do that than just create a simple little game, just like the Windows people discovered? He was inspired by tic-tac-toe. He wanted to do something that was very tic-tac-toe-like, but he didn't want to just create a tic-tac-toe game because that was kind of boring. His match three inspiration was tic-tac-toe, and he decided that he would put together this grid of rows and columns that would have colored tiles in them, do various combinations of having to match three things. As match three games have developed, it's become pretty simply match all of one color or all of one graphic type or whatever. But that's not what Columns was. He he did something a little more sophisticated than that. It was always match three, but there would be different levels of difficulty. So at the easiest levels, it would be the traditional match three, match three of the same color. Then there'd be another level of difficulty where it was match two of one color with one of another color. And then at a next level higher, then 
it was match three different colors. So you, you had to get three different colors in a row in a particular pattern. He was playing around with patterns more than just three of one color, though that's obviously the one that, always, that really took off. You know, it was, it was basically just, uh, in a way, a more complicated version of tic-tac-toe. You've got these colored tiles, and they are just tiles or squares at this point. The graphics are very rudimentary because he's just doing this as a little programming experiment. You're matching them, you're moving them around, you're eliminating them by putting three together. He makes this little thing, he's not planning to sell it, but he does put it out there into the world. You know, it becomes kind of a hit around his office. He gave it to a person in California, another Hewlett Packard employee over in California, who was kind of putting together a collection of applications made for the uh, Hewlett Packard Unix and X11 environment. A couple of other people that liked it that he worked with, Nathan Myers and Chris Christensen, decided to port it to DOS and Macintosh operating system, Mac OS, respectively. So it starts spreading around, but it's just this free game that's kind of being exchanged amongst engineers. Same time, you know, as I said, Sega is looking to get a puzzle game as well because they're big in the arcade. Puzzle games are getting big in the arcade, and they had Tetris for a time, and now they were having trouble with Tetris because of rights issues and all of this nonsense. Mm -hmm. So they wanted something as well. It ends up that a engineer named Steve Hanawa is working in Sega's American offices as kind of a liaison. He worked in Sega of America's offices kind of all through the mid-80s when they were doing the master system. Then, of course, they went through Tonka and they cut back on Sega of America. Now they're getting ready to ramp back up again with the Genesis and whatnot. Hanawa is not going to stay. He's going to be reassigned someplace else. He's looking for someone to replace him as kind of the technical person at Sega of America. He doesn't name the engineer in the interview, so I don't know who this engineer is, but there's a Japanese engineer that he knew that worked as a Sega contractor, was talking to him, and this engineer, this other Japanese engineer whose name I do not have, happened to have seen Columns, and so he introduced Hanawa to Columns. Hanawa was like, oh my gosh, this is an amazing game. Again, he knew that they were looking for a puzzle game, so then he sent it to Japan. The engineers in Japan loved it, you know, Sega's engineers in Japan, so they decided to make a game out of it. At that point, you get the classic version of Columns, which starts in the arcade and, of course, migrates to Game Gear. The designer of the Sega version was a guy named Hisaki Nimiya, or Nimiya. I don't know where the emphasis is on his last name. Oh, it's a problem trying to figure out the right emphasis on this level. <laughs> Exactly. Tasaki Nimiya was the designer on the Japanese version. You know, the basic gameplay is taken from this game that already exists, which by this time is in C. It started out on this Unix system, but, you know, when it got on the DOS, it's in C. That basic game is already in place. He does some balancing. He figures out what the kind of sweet spot and how many rows and columns to have and all of this kind of stuff. He gives it a new theme. Because, of course, the original game has this very generic tile theme. It's just a programming experiment. It's not meant for consumer consumption. Nimia knows that they need to do something a little better with it. There was kind of this idea already at this time that you do a kind of unique presentation or cohesive presentation on these puzzle games to give them a little more flair. Shanghai, of course, which we talked about, has this theme of the Orient. It has this theme of China and playing Mahjong 
in a seedy back alley tea house or opium dim just because Mahjong is, is one of these games, just like a lot of gambling games that has this vaguely sinister connotation to it. They really played up the Chinese aspect of it in all of the box art and in the screen art surrounding the board, in addition to the fact that, of course, just the Mahjong tiles are very Chinese and whatnot. Of course, Tetris very famously played up the Russian angle. Since the game was from Russia, you know, it had Russian music. Exactly. And it had pictures of St. Basil's Cathedral, the computer game version, as we talked about, very famously referenced the plane that the West German had landed in Red Square during the Cold War in the 80s. You know, just playing up the Soviet connection, the Russian connection in all of its motifs. Nimia decided that there needed to be a motif for this game as well, and he kind of thought in terms of the ancient Mediterranean world, not because the game had any connection with that, but just he wanted a coherent theme for it, and that was a coherent theme that nobody had done yet. The music is kind of reminiscent of ancient Mediterranean cultures. He decided that this was a bustling world of trade and commerce, All of these seafaring peoples like the Greeks and the Phoenicians and the Carthaginians trading with each other along the Mediterranean basin. He kind of thought this idea of different colored jewels represented this trade culture and this prosperity. And of course, a jewel is something that's very logical to have many different colors that you can match up. When you put this all together, Columns in its Sega iteration takes on this theme of jewels, which may or may not be a very common theme moving forward in these kinds of games. Totally not a common theme whatsoever. Shifty eye, shifty (laughs) eye. Right. So you get clacks and columns. They're starting coin-op. Of course, they're ported to console systems. Both of them end up on handheld systems. Columns is kind of the defining game for the Game Gear in a lot of ways, in the same way that Tetris is for the Game Boy. Yeah, you've got this idea of match three permeating. How do we get all of this off of handheld systems, which have some appeal, but only some appeal, and get them more mass market. Really, you need the intervention of a little thing called the internet. In the early 90s, you get the World Wide Web. You get the opening up of the internet for commercial use via the World Wide Web. You get an opportunity to start trying to make money doing things on the internet. You had, of course, networks before the internet that were public-facing, that were put together by large corporations that have these big time-shared mainframes sitting around anyway. They are expensive to operate, and they don't get much use on evenings and weekends, so why not let the public log in and use some of that extra capacity that you're not using? So you had things like CompuServe and the source going all the way back to the late 60s and 70s, In the 80s, you had things like Prodigy and Genie show up that were a little more sophisticated in their presentation to the public because CompuServe, when it started, was kind of just a side thing. It's like, well, we might as well use our computers for this, whereas something like Prodigy was created from the ground up to be something that was public-facing and so was a little more sophisticated in its graphical presentation and its commercialization. So you have these starting to come along. 
You, of course, also have the bulletin boards, the BBSs, which are being run largely by private individuals that have themselves fancy acoustic coupler and can get themselves out there and connected to uh, and have people connect into them through network infrastructure, pre-internet network infrastructures. So you have these havens as well. Of course, in this period of time, everything is bottlenecked by speed. Even in the 80s, you're talking about a 300 baud, not kilobaud, baud, <laughs> modem being the primary way you're dialing into these services. And you did need more hardware back then as well because you did need an acoustic coupler. If you're old enough to remember over-the-phone line modems in the 90s during the days of the World Wide Web, you'll, of course, remember that you hear the dial tone and then you hear all the stuff going on as your computer is talking to the phone system to get involved in that. Well, back in the day, they didn't have smart switching capabilities built into modems yet. You didn't just have a modem. You actually had a separate device called an acoustic coupler. You actually had to put your phone receiver on the acoustic coupler so that your phone receiver would get all of those little things directly into it and go and then connect you. It was really slow. You needed lots of specialized equipment. In the 80s, these systems got some adherence. Certainly CompuServe had some success. Prodigy had some success. Enough success that they transitioned to being internet service providers at the beginning of the 90s. It was always going to be niche and it was always going to be slow. There were some games on there, but it was mostly text-based stuff, and it was mostly geared towards the hardcore tech crowd, because only the hardcore tech crowd was going to have this equipment and this know-how and, quite simply, the patience to do all of this online stuff. So it's adventure, it's Hunt the Wumpus, it's Star Trek, it's strategy games, that kind of thing. You do get some graphical stuff in the 80s from things like Genie that are a little more sophisticated. But again, it's kind of geared towards that hardcore market. But it's the beginning of something. It's the beginning of an idea that you can put a game out there and lots and lots of people can see it, play it, maybe download it, etc. Then at the beginning of the 90s, as we're getting close to the World Wide Web, like just we're talking a couple of years before still the World Wide Web, but we're getting close to that. Everyone kind of knows the internet is coming. Everyone kind of knows networks are coming. Modems are a little faster, still not blazing speeds, <laughs> nowhere near broadband. They're faster than 300 or 600 baud. You don't need as much special equipment anymore. Your modem can be the self-contained little box now. You don't need an acoustic coupler anymore. So it's a device that someone a little less tech-savvy could feel a little more comfortable about plugging into their computer. There's this knowledge that the world is about to be connected in a way that it had never been connected before. I don't think most people back then were foreseeing the insanity of the connected world we have today, which in some ways has truly gone insane, but that's a whole nother topic of discussion that is far more important than little match three puzzle games. They knew that a more connected world was coming. There were people that could see that this was a way to bring in kind of a larger demographic, because if the world is going to be connecting anyway... If ordinary people are going to start getting on these networks, then we can maybe harness that to interest them in something. 
one of the first places to really hit this concept hard was Sierra Online, which, of course, we've talked about a lot before. We've talked about the Imagination Network, what started as the Sierra Network and then was renamed the Imagination Network. We talked about that a little bit in, in our Sierra episode. The Sierra Network was an early attempt to create one of these real big, massive web portals. Now, it wasn't on the web, so it's not technically a web portal because it's not the World Wide Web, but it functioned under the same idea as a web portal would. It was created to have multiple different areas that you could go to that had different types of content. It was created to have messaging. It was created to have nice, shiny graphics to keep people interested. It was basically a web portal. And it's kind of nuts how it was run because Sierra was up in the mountains. Sierra was up in the uh, the mountains of California, in the foothills near Yosemite National Park. Because Sierra was in the mountains, the TSN, the Sierra Network, was in the mountains. They basically jury-rigged this system of PCs all networked together to create this network. Right now, you may be thinking to yourself, well... What's so crazy about that, Alex? They just call that a server farm. Okay, yeah, in a way, the Sierra Network was a server farm. You have to remember that this was a period of time when PCs weren't really powerful enough yet to form the backbone of a server farm. If you were doing things like CompuServe or Prodigy or Genie, you weren't using ordinary PCs in server racks like you would have a server farm today. You were using higher-end mainframe computers. The idea of using basically a commercial-quality PC and stringing a bunch of those together to create a massive network that you're hoping thousands or hundreds of thousands of people are going to be dialing into was actually pretty crazy in 1992, even though that's the way it's done today. Then the other problem was, they're up in the mountains. Where's the last place that ever gets anything approaching infrastructure? The deep, deep ocean. Well, sure. But where people are actually living. Oh, in that case, the mountains. (laughs) Right, you know, or isolated rural areas and and stuff like that. Places that don't have a lot of population. (laughs) So, Sierra did have a T1 line, which is good. But they had a... T1 line. That's bad. And keep in mind that even though we sort of think of a T1 line, at least ubiquitously, as being something that's supposed to be really fast, it's not as fast as you think it is. Ironically, a lot of your modern day home DSL and cable connections are actually faster than a T1. T1 was good speed for the time, but they only had the one line. So if they had any interruption anywhere, And remember, they're up in the mountains, they're up in rural areas, there's wind, there's storms. According to John Williams, brother of Ken Williams, the founder, who was also in marketing at the company, sometimes the locals would just go out and take pot shots at some of the network infrastructure for fun. Not sabotage, it's just like, you know, target practice on these poles running around with wires on them, because why not? Because it's the country and everyone's bored. There were so many things that could bring down a single line. And if you didn't have the redundancies, then, you know, if your line went down, then you're in trouble. Trying to run a network from rural mountainous America in 1992 using nothing but a set of jury-rigged PCs all networked together in a time period when that was not the standard like it is today, 
meant that that network had a lot of problems. It never was profitable, but it did something very important, which was it was one of the first times that somebody was like, let's create something that everyone can enjoy. One of Ken Williams, and this really was his brainchild, one of Ken Williams' ideas for this is he really felt this is something that could connect isolated people, could connect older people, could connect seniors in a way that would relieve some of the social isolation they might often feel. So it was designed from the ground up to be both user-friendly in terms of its interface. It's all graphical. It's all GUI. And it was designed from the ground up to have games that ordinary people would enjoy, card games, board games. It also had more complex games. They hired Joe Ibarra to do some Bard's Tale-type RPGs. It had that side to it, too, but it had card games. It had board games. It was this idea of connect with other people, play with other people, all of these, you know, simple little games. They were one of the very first ones to do that. I'm not saying there was never a card game on Genie or Prodigy. There probably was. But the entire focus was there from the beginning. And so the Sierra Network was a watershed for that, even though it it was kind of a failure. Then, of course, as the World Wide Web opens up, game companies realize right away that this is a new frontier to get people to play together. We have to remember that in the early days of the Internet, of the World Wide Web, I should say more precisely, Game companies were not infrastructure companies. If you were a game company, you hired programmers to code a game, you hired artists to draw the art, animators maybe to animate, you had a sound guy doing the sound. You're not creating a complex program like an operating system. You're not creating an application that you mean to maintain over time. A game is fire and forget. Yeah, at this point, games are complex enough that enough bugs slip in that sometimes you may put out a patch to a game. Like literally a patch on disk, of course, because you're not downloading stuff. You might put out one revision of a game at some point if you have a really bad bug. Basically, games are fire and forget. Even as these companies are starting to realize that internet connectivity or network connectivity, even local area network connectivity, is something that is going to enhance their games and is something that their players are going to enjoy... They're not creating the infrastructure in order to do matchmaking. They're not creating lobbies where everybody can go online and find each other. They're not creating matchmaking services. They're not really creating any kind of internet infrastructure or web infrastructure for their games at all. Multiplayer on something like Doom, which multiplayer was an integral part of Doom from the very beginning. Deathmatch was something that they knew was going to be big and they put in. You're still talking about having to physically haul PCs near each other and use cables to connect them in order to play with your friends, either direct serial connections or maybe you can get a local area network going. But they're not creating ways for you to do it online or over the Internet because that is a lot of work and these companies are not infrastructure companies. They're fire-and-forget game companies. That makes sense, right? It does. So they just make these games, they put them out there, they will sink or fail on their own merits. But they're not thinking of it as a long-term investment. They aren't thinking of it as a thing that needs constant support like we do now. Practically any game that goes out there these days is built on top of an existing infrastructure to an extent, mm-hmm. is actively maintained, at least for a little while. Any game that comes out on Steam, uh, it's almost like a public giant beta. 
everyone tries it out, finds some sort of bug, some sort of grain breaking, something or other. They patch it. They might improve it. They get feedback from fans of the game, and then they tweak and mess with things in order to get something better out there. That's actually kind of the appeal of early access games is that you get that sort of dialogue between fans of a certain kind of game and the developer themselves, and that has its own advantages and disadvantages as far as a game development process might be. And where that sweet balance is between those two concepts is something that some companies have figured out, others haven't. And it's not something I think that either of us can really define as what would make a good balance there. Exactly. Because the game companies weren't involved in this space in kind of the early and mid-90s when the web is just opening up, you got middlemen that came in and provided that infrastructure instead. So you got companies like Implayer.com, the Total Entertainment Network, 10 for short, that would provide matchmaking services for players of these games. So you could play all these first-person shooters coming out like Doom or some of the strategy games coming out like Command & Conquer that had multiplayer. You could join one of these services, which would generally at some point charge you some money for some of this, join one of these services, then they would have all the infrastructure. They would have the servers. They would have the matchmaking services. They would have the waiting rooms and lobbies. They would allow you to connect with other people around the country or even around the world that were also playing the same game and then actually do multiplayer play over the internet, not having to be physically tied to other computers around you or figure out some kind of IPX protocol thing and and dial directly into a friend's computer. They have a way to do what everybody does every day on, on multiplayer games now, which is just go out into the wider World Wide Web and find other people to play with. These services, of course, need more than just that, because at this point, these are sophisticated games. Not everyone has top-quality PCs with top-quality modems that can play these games well over the Internet with lag and sync issues and all of this. They can't just be in this business. They also start supplementing their AAA game matchmaking kind of services and whatnot with simple games that have both broad-based appeal and which are not bandwidth-intensive, which means that you can play them even with less powerful PCs or less speedy modems. You start seeing, again, you see card games like Hearts and Spades. You see board games. You see all of these other types of games showing up in places like mplayer.com and the Total Entertainment Network that are meant to connect people together. The Internet And the World Wide Web is getting a lot of press. People are talking about how it's connecting people. People are talking about it's important in education. You see that trend a lot. Think of the children and, oh, well, if my children need this, then I need it as well. And if I need this, why don't I fool around with it and see what's going on with it? And, oh, I can go on the Internet. And, oh, wow, this is amazing. And, look, this site lets me play spades with people all over the world. And, oh, my God, that's amazing. So you get this idea again of more ordinary people playing games on some of these networks. Then, of course, because the Internet's getting supercharged, you start getting this dot-com bubble. Anyone that's involved in the Internet can get fast funding for stuff. Major tech companies, major Internet companies are setting up their own portals for things like news and weather, and, of course, they want games as well. So you have AOL setting up a game portal You have Yahoo setting up a game portal. You have Microsoft setting up a game portal through the Microsoft Network, MSN. 
Now you're getting all of these websites out here that are offering games. And that's great. The problem is the monetization doesn't work. It turns out that people are interested in playing some of these simple games, which, like I said at this point, as often as not, is just, uh, you know, card games or stuff like that. They're interested in playing these simple games when they can play them for free. They're not enticed to subscribe to a service to play these games. That's the model that these companies are trying to develop, whether it's dedicated game portals like 10 or it's ISPs or major tech companies that are trying to entice you like Microsoft or AOL. The idea is they want to give you a hit for free. They want you to get used to playing these games online, and then they want you to pay a monthly subscription to keep having access or to have access to more players or more games or whatever else. That's just not happening. You've got this broadening of the casual base happening, but you're not getting money out of it. That's a problem. Electronic Arts very famously gets into to this as well in the late 90s with EA.com, and it's an absolute disaster because they're trying to get people to subscribe to these kind of games as well. They're doing games for AOL. They buy Pogo to do their own portal. They just can't get people to do it either. There's something else missing. So that's going to kind of bring us to our final look at how these things spread ubiquitously and become not just played, but also uh, profitable. To start this, we have to go back a little bit again to the early internet and how the early kind of World Wide Web was working. One of the appeals of the early World Wide Web, once it was opened up to commercial business, is that ordinary people could have web pages. Ordinary people have web pages. What kind of craziness is that? I wouldn't have made a web page back in the early 90s that was just pretty much my name and a bunch of random link to things I liked. Why would we have something like that on my ISP? <laughs> and of course, you know, everybody was getting into that because back in the day, as Jeff kind of hinted at, actually a lot of people went local for their internet service. Yes, AOL was out there. Yes, CompuServe was out there. You know, the big public utilities, the cable and telephone companies, hadn't really gotten to the ISP business yet. So there were lots and lots of mom-and-pop ISPs out there, just very extremely local ISPs. Neither of us, uh, when we first got the World Wide Web in our homes in the 90s, mid-90s, neither of us were going through one of these walled gardens like AOL. We were using a local internet service provider. I don't even remember the name of it, but it was just a company that was... HTC. Yeah, HTC, just right here, just right here in town. They would give you internet access, they would give you an email address, and they would often give you just a little bit of space to have your own web page or something as well. And if you were like me and you worked a little deal with them, you could put your own little server, your little computer there, and they'd host it there for you on a dedicated line. It was fun. Yeah, a lot of people were getting access to web page space from their ISP, of course, there were the early web page providers like GeoCities, RIP, where you could relatively cheaply get yourself some web page space as well. Yahoo lets you do web pages as well. People were getting on and were experimenting with web pages. Well, we have to go back to this idea again that the internet is really, really slow. The web is really, really slow in this time period. The speeds are not great. A web page that did much more than text 
was not very easy for the average person to do. Yeah, some fancy company could do it. Most of these early websites were text and maybe a small amount of still pictures. So people got creative trying to spice up their website artistically by using multicolored backgrounds or multicolored text and little flashing things. And oh my God, the mid-90s internet was an ugly place. It's still an ugly place. It was much uglier back then. No, 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 no. It's still ugly. If you go back in a Wayback Machine to some websites, you can just see how ugly it is. Or if you want to see, like, the culmination of it, I believe the old Space Jam. Space Jam. The Space Jam movie website thing. That still exists out there. And all of its 90s glory. (laughs) So, (laughs) I mean, even back then, people knew this kind of stuff was ugly and annoying. There was a real desire to do something better in terms of graphics and animation, but the bottleneck was just file size and internet speed. So this is the environment that we get a little program called Flash. No, not Flash. I hate Flash. I hate it with a passion. Well, so does Steve Jobs. Thanks to Steve Jobs hating Flash with all his might, Flash is about to go away forever. And we are very happy for him for that. (laughs) Yes, that's uh, an interesting Steve Jobs legacy. Obviously, he's been long dead at this point. His hatred of Flash is well known. And basically, as Apple became more and more powerful as a platform, basically Apple, uh, because of Steve Jobs, was able to force the whole world to stop using Flash. It's a fascinating story that has nothing to do with video games. So it had something to do with video games. Do you have any idea how many video games were written in Flash? Well, no, 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 no. We're talking about Flash games. I meant the death of Flash. The murder of Flash isn't about video games. It should be. Apple basically murdered Flash, and now Flash is going away. In the mid-90s, when it first came around, Flash was a big deal because you could do animations in it that were very non-resource intensive, small file sizes and small bandwidth usage. But you could do animations on websites which was a huge deal back then. I mean, yeah, everyone hates Flash now that's in tech for the most part because of all sorts of problems that it has. But when it first came out, this was unbelievable. Eventually, not right away, but a couple of years later, Flash got a scripting language. So it was just meant to do canned animations. It wasn't meant to do interactive stuff. But then a couple years later, they developed a scripting language because Java had come around and Java was a fairly powerful for the day internet scripting language, was getting a lot of popularity. And so I think the Flash people wanted to get in on some of that Java action. So they created a scripting language within Flash. Once there was a scripting language for Flash, you could not just make animations, but you could make interactive animations where people could click on things and things could happen. When you can click on things and things can happen, Well, now you can make games. There was an individual, a teenager, by the name of Tom Fulp. Tom Fulp was a hardcore gamer. He was one of the few people in the world that had himself a Neo Geo video game system. Very expensive, near-arcade-perfect video game system. Tom Fulp, when he was just 13 years old, started a fanzine for the Neo Geo. 
Now, Neo Geo is Latin for basically new earth or new, let's say, ground. So he called his fanzine for the Neo Geo New Ground. I might be able to see where (laughs) this is going. So flash forward a few years, he moves his fanzine online because the internet's there and starts getting into websites. So he wants to have the website domain be the same as his fanzine. He goes to register the domain newground.com and discovers that it's already been taken. He adds an S to it and creates a website called newgrounds.com. You know, he's a hacker type. He's exploring with stuff. He's doing art and animation. He started out on an Amiga and Deluxe Paint. He moved on to PC. You know, he was frustrated by the fact that connecting art and animation together was a pain in the ass, quite frankly, back in the day. And that's why something like Flash was so revolutionary, because it allowed you to connect art and animation easily. So once he discovers Flash, he's like blown away by that. He starts working with that. You know, he's built up a community of people around him, people he talks to through his fanzine and through his websites. So there was another artist that he met named Dan Paladin through Newgrounds. Together, they decided to create a little game in Flash called Alien Hominid, which was just this side-scrolling shooter. At that point, they get together with some more friends and found a company called Behemoth, which creates several games like this little thing called Castle Crashers that one might have heard of. I might even own it. Yes. Of course, this was the Flash version. This was the web version, the, the pre, the one that everyone bought on Steam. But it's the same game. It's just... The platform is Flash. So he's got new grounds. He's got website. He's got chat rooms and message boards and all of these things that website people put together back in those times. He's getting involved in the Flash game scene. So he decides to put these two things together. He decides to start collecting submissions of Flash games and posting them on new grounds. This, of course, becomes the premier web portal for simple Flash games, many of which go on to be foundational in the early games movement, like Castle Crashers and like Super Meat Boy and other things like that that started out in Flash. That gets us off onto a whole tangent that we're not going to go on because that's the indie game scene. This is kind of a point where our casual game thing and our indie game thing are kind of together, but we're going to push back off of that and not talk about the further development of most of that just because, I mean, Super Meat Boy is not what anyone would call a casual game. It would be considered extremely difficult. Right, but this is the coming together of Flash and the Internet, which is important, and this is kind of how it gets going, because, of course, at that point, there's one final very important piece that brings together big Internet companies doing web portals, Flash and animation, indie game development, and all of these things come together to form kind of the next single explosive moment, the biggest moment in casual gaming since Tetris, which is the creation of a little game company called Sexy Action Cool. I see someone playing up the sex angle. (laughs) Back at our good friends, Sierra. We talked about how Sierra Online did the Sierra Network in the early 90s, one of these first attempts at these big mass market networks. Mm -hmm. We talked about how that was largely a failure, which it was. Flash forward a few years, and Sierra isn't done 
trying to have some kind of portal because the dot-com era, you know, everyone's getting web portals in place. A few years later, Sierra gets back into it. And this is, you know, new management. This is after Ken Williams has been pushed aside and they've been bought out. We talk about all the buyouts in our Sierra episode, but it's a slightly different Sierra at this point. But they try again and they create an online division called the World Opponent Network to try to get into the same kind of thing the Total Entertainment Network's in or the MSN, GameZone is in, all of this stuff. Just online matchmaking, simple uh, online games, web portal, blah, blah, blah. Two of the employees of this division were a couple of college dropouts who met at Purdue University before they dropped out by the name of John Vecchi and Brian Fiet, or Brian Fiet. Vecchi is V-E-C-H-E-Y, Fiet is F-I-E-T-E. Hopefully I'm pronouncing those something resembling their correct names. Both gamers going way back, both people that programmed games in their spare time. They met, bonded, decided they wanted to make games together, ended up dropping out of college to go work for Sierra at this New World Opponent Network. They were very frustrated. This wasn't a very ambitious division. This is a very different Sierra than the one that launched the Sierra Network. There wasn't a lot of imagination behind what they were doing. They weren't really making original product. They were just kind of slapping multiplayer code on existing things. They were kind of burnt out on that and decided that they wanted to do their own thing instead. Meanwhile, at the Total Entertainment Network... Again, you know, this this is why I spent so much time laying the groundwork about all these web portals and all of these early network experiments, because it all comes into play right now. At the uh, Total Entertainment Network, there was a producer by the name of Jason Kapalka. Jason Kapalka had been a game journalist writing for Computer Gaming World when he was recruited to join 10, the Total Entertainment Network. 10 had started out really focusing on the hardcore, but it was pulling back from that and would ultimately change its name to Pogo.com, something a little more uh, friendly sounding, I guess. Pogo would then be bought by Electronic Arts a couple years later down the line when they were trying to set up EA.com. Of course, everything had to have .com in it because this was right in the middle of the .com bubble when anything that had .com in it could raise lots of venture money and get lots of money on the stock market, whether they had a good idea or not. Kapalka had started out working on, you know, doing matchmaking and stuff for AAA games, but then was starting to work more and more on casual stuff. During this period of time, he got to know Vecchi and Fiat, who were at Sierra. The three of them decide that they want to go into business for themselves and get into this casual game development themselves. They decide that the first game they're going to do is actually a vaguely uh, pornographic game, of all things, because they think that's an untapped market. So they're going to do a strip poker game called Foxy Poker. It's not really X-rated. You know, it's one of those things where even though... Bits of clothing do get stripped off. You never get quite everything off. One of those more softcore things. Exactly. They decide to name their company, as I said, Sexy Action Cool, because there was an Antonio Banderas movie called Desperado that had just come out. The uh, film critic for The Rolling Stone, Peter Travers, described it as sexy period, action period, cool period. And this quote was used on the movie posters. 
And they just thought that that sounded kind of ridiculous and kind of funny. So they decided to name their company Sexy Action Cool and they were going to do the strip poker game. They put this out. They sell it on whatever. We're in the late 90s at this point. They kind of don't want to be involved in that kind of thing. So they're looking for something else to do. Vecchi is, you know, just surfing the web and he comes across something much more interesting for their purposes called the Colors Game. It's a simple JavaScript game that was created by another programmer that was just fooling around with stuff. It was similar to something like Columns, where it was a match three. It didn't have any advanced graphics or anything, but it was different colors and match three things. And again, I think it was just a programming exercise by the guy that created it. I mean, he did put it out on the internet. But again, you're talking about a new, simple animation environment. You're talking about learning how to do JavaScript stuff. So it makes sense to just create something that is simple animation, simple clicky, and move around and, and see if Java's working for you. So he does the whole match three thing and makes the colors game. Vecchi discovers this, and the sexy action cool people are like, well, this is cool. We should do this. It's very addictive. This whole match three thing is always very, very addictive. So they decide that they're going to do a match three game. You know, they put together a few other games as well, because these are all simple games. You can't just do one. But that's the one that's kind of the uh, cream of the crop. They decide to give it a jewel motif as well, because they're coming up with, okay, well, we don't just want it to be colored squares or colored circles. We need something that comes in lots of colors where we can make the shapes really distinct. So they're thinking, well, what's like that? Well, there's fruit. They think of fruit, but it's like, well, lots of fruits are round. I mean, you can have bananas and cherries, but then, you know, when you get into apples and oranges and whatnot, they look kind of similar, and they don't want something that's just different colors. They want something visually distinct. So then they reach the same basic conclusion that our friend at uh, Sega, Nimia, reached years before, a decade before, that jewels are perfect because they can be different colors. You can just make them very distinct shapes because a gemstone is just whatever shape you cut it into. I mean, there's no limit to what kind of shape you could theoretically make a gemstone. They decide that they're going to do gemstones and they're going to do this motif. They create a game they call Diamond Mine now at this point, this match three game. Now that they're trying to make these fun, simple games for everybody... They don't really want to keep the name Sexy Action cool. That feels like something, especially with its connotation with the poker game they've already done, that is maybe not going to go over quite so well. They decide to change the name to something more friendly, and they name the company PopCap Games. So that's where they came from. Yes, they did, from the world of strip poker. They, uh... Go to all the big companies, all the big web portals uh, selling around their games. Microsoft is the one that ends up buying it. MSN, Microsoft Network, buys Diamond Mine and some of their other stuff to put up on their game portal in the year 2000. They had tried to look into maybe selling a retail version as well. Nobody was interested in that. I think it was seen as a little too simple. This is a period of time, of course, when the entire world is getting fascinated with 3D and first-person shooters and real-time gameplay and big, complex AAA games. There wasn't really a home for it in, in those areas. They end up putting it on the Microsoft Game Portal because that's where simple games go in the late 90s, early 2000s. They go on web portals. They did want to try to 
get a retail version out as well, because this is still fairly early in the internet days, not as early as, as what we were talking about before. There's still more of a mass market, especially to like buy it as opposed to just play it for free on MSN if you can get a retail version. They never get uh, like a, maybe they eventually did, but they didn't end up doing a boxed version, but they decided that they could at least create a pay version that people could download. So they kind of get into the publishing version themselves out of necessity because nobody else wants it. They make a deal with Microsoft that they can continue to always have the free version up on their website. Plus, they would give Microsoft 50% of the revenue from the downloaded game, from the version, the full version that people could download. And so Microsoft was like, oh, fine, you can do that. You can sell it as well. People at first thought nobody would buy a game that they could already get online for free, but it turns out people were interested enough and addicted enough in it and, you know, wanted to play it kind of free of of restraint or whatever. And, And so Bejeweled, as they called the downloaded version of the game, ends up becoming super popular both on the web and as something people were buying and downloading. Bejeweled opens up this whole new front. PopCap becomes big. They create other simple little games like Zuma that also become popular. The web is becoming fast enough now that these games can be played online with simple animation and graphics and whatnot, and enough people have a good internet connection that they're coming to this. These game portals are drawing people in because they're free versions of the games. So you kind of have this widespread move towards these simple, fun, casual puzzle games becoming very popular. And of course, PopCap becomes the leader of that in the early days. Then we get to Web 2.0. You get stuff like Facebook. Facebook, of course, starts out as just a social networking site. Keep up with your friends. Then some really smart people realize that Facebook can also be a place to monetize games and monetize game content. Of course, the real pioneer of that is the company Zynga. Zynga was founded in 2007. Mark Pincus, of course, is the famous founder who was also the CEO. But there were a few other founders as more, Eric Schemeyer, Justin Waldron, Michael Luxton, Stephen Schodler, and Andrew Trader. It was originally called Presidio Media. They very quickly renamed it Zynga, which was actually named after Mark Pincus's dog, which is why there's a dog silhouette in the Zynga logo. They created the company to put games on Facebook. They recognized that Facebook was a new kind of platform that was connecting people, and Facebook realized that they were a new kind of platform that was connecting people. So Facebook decided to open things up to games. Zynga decided to put games on Facebook. A poker game again, not a strip poker game, but Texas Hold'em Poker was again, (laughs) was the first game they put out. There was a real poker craze, particularly for Texas Hold'em in the late 90s, early 2000s, which is why a lot of these online game companies are going to that. Of course, Part of that craze happens because the internet makes it possible to do gambling. (laughs) If you set up your domain for your poker site in a country where gambling is not restricted in the same way as it is in the United States, then people can log into your portal even if they're in the United States where gambling is restricted. You can have more widespread poker tournaments where real money's changing hands, which you can't have in person. So that really kind of fuels this poker craze online. That's why you see a lot of these casual game companies dialing into this whole thing with poker. 
So they do a Texas Hold'em game first, but then the big one they come up with in 2009 is Farmville. Farmville creates this new paradigm. They really figure out a clever way to monetize. And I say clever from an economic perspective. I think it's terrible from a user perspective. I think this kind of free-to-play gameplay is so manipulative and so awful. But from an economic perspective, it's very clever because Farmville is just a very chill game. Obviously, it's based on earlier kind of city construction games like SimCity, but rather than being something that has really any kind of challenge to it at all, it's just you build a structure, you put some crops out, the crops grow over time, then you harvest the crops. You get money and you build more structures and you expand your farm to get more crops, and it's just self-sustaining like this. Farmville is very casual because you can just spend a couple of minutes setting things up and then you wait for your stuff to happen and come back to it later. So it's something you can play in little stents. There's also different items that you need to build certain buildings or to put down certain crops or do certain things. If you have those things, you can give them to other people. And so they create this trading aspect to it because it's a social network. Facebook is the social network. There was a movie that called it that. If you're playing and your friends are playing and your friend has this thing, then they can trade it to you or you can trade to them. And then, of course, there were the push notifications. If you've only joined Facebook in the last few years, if you're a little younger and have only recently had a Facebook account, you won't quite understand how Facebook used to work. Facebook used to allow third-party entities, particularly game developers, to do push posts or to tie into your friends' accounts to do push posts on the games that they were playing. Back in, like, 2010, nowadays your Facebook is cluttered with ads because, of course, they came up with all of these algorithms that are destroying everything that allow them to be like, oh, you visited a pet website once to order some cat food? You must need lots and lots of cat food. So now, all of a sudden, in your Facebook feed, you see 50 different advertisements for cat food. Those are the kinds of notifications that Facebook pushes on you today. Well, back in the day, before they had those advanced advertising algorithms, the way they would push content on you is they would allow third-party programs to push content. So your Facebook feed back in 2010 would be full of notifications that somebody had done this in Farmville or somebody had hit this family in Mafia Wars or somebody had gotten this item in Cityville. You never really had much of a Facebook presence, so I don't know if you remember much of that since you don't really go on Facebook much. Yeah, my Facebook, when I actually had it before I killed it, I got on, people started inviting me to the whole Farmville Mafia thing, and it's like, no, I don't want anything to do with this. It just seemed like (laughs) a lot of the things that I saw with all the people doing stuff, it just turned, at least in my opinion, was just seemed toxic and made that state of fear of missing out, I guess, the thing, or sort of like everyone's life is better than yours kind of thing. Right. And so that would just sort of bring me down. I just didn't like that. So that's why yeah. I was like, I'm not going to deal with Facebook. I actually still hold a Facebook account purely just so that my name is locked and no one can like do messed up things with it. I don't touch this thing at all. Right. It was kind of self-perpetuating. Social games, as they were called back then, called social because they were on a social network, Briefly, for just a period of a few years, from like 2009 to maybe 2011 or 2012, very briefly became this huge thing because it was self-perpetuating. 
because you would play the game when you did stuff. The game would notify your other friends that you did stuff. Then your other friends would become aware of a game. They'd decide to start playing the game. And then their friends would be notified. And it was just this cascade effect. At its height, Farmville had 83.76 million monthly active users, 34.5 million daily active users. That means that 34.5 million people were checking on their farm in Farmville daily at the height. 34.5 million. That is a lot of people. 86 million were checking in with their farms at least once a month, even if they weren't very active. Just think of just how many people you had to have hooked in order for that kind of thing to really take place. That is a lot of people addicted to the thing. And if you can just monetize a small percentage of that, you are going to be raking in money. Right. And it was perfectly created for this because it had a good reward structure, good risk reward structure. You really didn't have to do much. All you had to do was do a couple of clicks to set things up. Then you just waited then you got new things. So you were just constantly getting new, exciting things without having to put in much effort. And it's just kind of this positive feedback loop that just completely addicted people. Then, of course, you know, it takes time to do things, but they start introducing that you can speed up the time it takes to do things by just spending a little in-game currency. Of course, you buy that in-game currency with real money. Then you get into this loop where I'm out of things to do, but I want to do more. So then you spend a little money, just a little real money, just a couple of bucks to speed things up. And it's like, oh, well, that was great. Then the next time you get impatient, you spend a couple of more bucks. Then pretty soon, if you're what they call a whale who just sinks tons and tons of money into a game, you're spending hundreds of bucks a month on a completely free game to get time savers or stat boosts or these kind of things. So you get this whole free-to-play ecosystem that is kind of harmful in a lot of ways, but succeeds in monetizing these casual games in a kind of ingenious manner. The social game thing peaks in the early 2010s on Facebook. The last Facebook game of any note comes from a little company called King.com. King was founded all the way back in 2003 by a group including Ricardo Zacconi and Toby Rowland, who had created an early dating site that was very popular. So they were in this web portal business. We're still in the web portal days in the early 2000s. This company kind of spans all of these periods. They created a dating site that was kind of successful, But then they decided to uh, sell it to Match.com, which was the big company in the business. Then they got together with a few other people and created another web portal called Spray, which got destroyed when the dot-com bubble burst. Then they replaced that with another one called Midas Player, which was also having trouble. But they finally managed to stabilize themselves and renamed it King.com in 2005. They were one of these web portal companies. They had their own web portal with cheap free games. They were providing cheap free games to other web portals like Yahoo. It was all very basic stuff. They were making enough money to make it work. Then Facebook came along. Facebook completely destroyed the web portals. Like social gaming took out the web portals, that casual game space, and replaced it with this whole social game thing. King.com got in on that. They created a game called Bubble Witch Saga, which was very much in the mold of a Farmville or Cityville 
it was that kind of game. Meanwhile, they had created on their web portal a game called Candy Crush, which was another one of these match three games. It was just a simple match three game like Bejeweled. On Facebook, you can't just have something that is simple, repetitive gameplay. I mean, the gameplay on Facebook is simple and repetitive, but Facebook games have this idea of progression. You're advancing, you're getting newer, shinier things, you're getting newer, shinier rewards. That's the feedback loop that you need on Facebook because you need that constant stream of messages going out to your friends about all the cool things you're doing and getting so that they play the game too. Bubble Witch Saga had a progression system very similar to Farmville. When they brought Candy Crush to Facebook, they knew that it couldn't just be the same as the web portal. They had to create this idea of progression as well. So they changed the name to Candy Crush Saga, and they created a leveling system. Rather than just clearing things and storing points, they create individual levels where in each level you have to achieve a minimum score using a specific number of moves in order to harvest special ingredients. And these special ingredients can be used to kind of essentially cheat. I mean, they're essentially power-ups that can, can be used to clear stuff. You only have a certain number of lives. They made it a game of progression. If you lose all your lives you have to wait for them to replenish because it's using that same Facebook method of the way we monetize is everything's free, but after a certain period of time, you have to wait before you play again. Unless you pay us money, then you can keep playing right away. That little trick they like doing. You only get so many moves per day unless you give us money, and then we'll let you do all the moves. Right. It doesn't limit you per day, which some of the games do. It limits you by lives. You can keep playing until you lose all your lives. Then you have to wait for your lives to come back unless you pay money. So there's the monetization. Candy Crush Saga becomes big on Facebook. It's kind of the last really big Facebook game. Uh, It's released in 2012. It's also released on the new app stores on the smartphone platforms on iOS or Android. By 2012, you've got these app stores that are really well-established on these mobile phone, on these smartphone platforms. Then, soon afterwards, Facebook changes the way notifications work so that third-party games can no longer spam your friends with notifications. Which arguably, at least in my mind, sounds like a really good thing. No, it, it is a very good thing. Facebook gaming kind of collapses almost overnight because the elimination of that feedback loop kind of destroys the momentum. By this time, the Android and iOS stores are well enough established. Smartphones have penetrated enough of the population that these games just move seamlessly onto smartphones where the same feedback loop that worked in the Facebook games in terms of they're free to play, free to download, but if you want to speed up processes or get extra help, you can pay money. Just works really well as in-app purchases within these smartphone platforms. Everything kind of migrates there. Games like Candy Crush Saga continue to be huge on smartphone today. That's kind of where the casual game space is now. 
you kind of got this combination of simple games for web portals plus positive feedback loops on social networks plus the ubiquity of smartphones and being able to play games on your phone just casually every now and then. These three things mixed together to create kind of the modern casual game space where you have this freemium play model, you have game downloads measured in the billions. Candy Crush Saga has been downloaded 2.7 billion times. That doesn't mean 2.7 billion people have played it because obviously this is download. So when you update, upgrade your phone, you're having to re-download it on your new phone. Still, you're talking about tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people playing these games. That's how you get to the point where if you're just waiting in line at Chipotle, you can whip out your phone and play a level of Candy Crush if there's a particularly long line. This is kind of the way that gaming became ubiquitous. It started with a vision of, hey, here's a simple game mom and dad may like to play. Brad Freger with Shanghai, with Klondike Solitaire. It moves through the Tetris puzzle craze. Then it just moves through web portals and connectivity and smartphones. There you have it. There is a quick overview, quick for us, because it's only two episodes instead of 20, a quick overview of the evolution of casual gaming. Well, that makes sense. It uh, really sets up where this stuff came from, how it really evolved, where it is now, some of the pitfalls and problems that it kind of introduced into the entire video game industry that we are still dealing with today. I would say especially a lot of those freemium models is really where there's some issues with that kind of model. While it does allow for freeness for games, it just it taps into a psychological aspect of a lot of people's minds where it creates that really bad addictive loop that's almost akin to that addiction that you can get from gambling. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So since we've gotten done with our look at casual games, let's look at something not casual. What's that going to be? Well, yes, after doing something so casual for such a period of time, I think it's time to go back to something a little more hardcore. Particularly go back to something a little earlier, because this was something a little more modern, and hit on some early days again. There's nothing more hardcore, well, there's really nothing more hardcore than coin-op, but in the home, there's nothing more hardcore than the console market. We've talked about the Atari VCS. We've talked about its plucky competitor, the Metallic Television. But there was another competitor as well that came just at the tail end, right before the crash destroyed everything. That other competitor was Coleco. Coleco was a critically important company in the early history of the video game industry. It's one that we've managed to go 100-plus episodes without giving a uh, proper overview look at, though obviously they have come up time and again in other contexts. If Atari and Mattel are deserving of episodes and Nintendo and Sega are deserving of episodes, let's go back and catch that guy that we haven't really done justice to yet, Coleco Industries. Alrighty, we will go take a look at ColecoVision next time on They Create Worlds. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have linked to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, 
can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at daycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash daycreateworlds. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward, found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roland Music, found at freemusicarchive.org, used under a Creative Commons attribution license. 